Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start, if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores. And with me today, I have Michael Malik. Hello. Hi there. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about sort of who you are and what you do? So I'm... Michael Mack. I'm CEO of RML Group, uh, where we are today. And we're a, uh, an automotive engineering business that was fully motorsport. Now we do all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah. So we've, we are currently at RML Group and we've done a little, a little tour, a little whistle stop, cruise around all of the sort of things, things that you do. Um, how, you know, where did this journey start for you? How, do, how, how did you sort of get to here? So it's it's been quite a long journey that started before I was born, actually. <laughs> um, so my, the Malik family has been building and selling custom race cars since 1958. So started off with my grandfather, okay. um, my father and uncle both raced. Ray, my father, who started this business, uh, was well sports car champion and all kinds of stuff. So an amazing driver, brilliant engineer. Um, I sort of fell into motorsport funnily enough because of that started kart racing when I was young uh, and then came into the business uh, actually as an apprentice when I was 16 so I left left school at 16 after GCSEs yeah because uh, I was fortunate enough to be racing at the time nice. uh, and uh, combined my start my race career uh, with doing an apprenticeship here in in the business so doing everything from driving the van to repairing my race car when I crashed it which nice. is a good understanding. That I could see why you might be like, oh, this school stuff seems pretty boring if you get to come and like hang out here and be doing racing and yeah, things dri- like that. Driving, driving race cars was a bit more fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then, you know, fast forward, I guess, a few years, did you, you were sort of working in all the different departments, trying different things. Yeah, d- yeah, literally went around every department, then left and just raced for many years, for about 10 years or so. 
um, and then came back into the business 13 or so years ago. Um, initially working on the sort of commercial side and ha did some fun projects that I kind of concepted, you know, Nissan Juke R that we yeah. saw earlier was, was my first project, which was a really cool one to get stuck into. Um, a few years on from that, I, I took over as CEO about seven years ago and you know, the business has changed a lot. Um, but it's, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff, as you've seen, and we'll touch on. Okay, let's, I, I want to I dive back a little bit. Um, what, what sort of things were you racing? Uh, so initially, I was racing Malik's. So okay, my first, yeah. yeah. Um, so we, we obviously had a few around us. Um, first professional racing was in what's called National Supersports. So they were cars that were similar to Radicals, basically. Right, so yeah, yeah. Two-litre open-top sports car. Um, I did the World Sports Car Championship for a while. I won the National Sick. Super Sports Championship, did some British GT. Um, yeah, a few rounds of the World Sports Car Championship in various different cars. Um, and also did a bit of the FIA GT World Championship in the Selena 7, uh, which was a car oh, that wow. we actually designed and built here in Wellingborough. Oh, really? Yeah, which not many people know about. No, they're, they're cool. Oh, that is such a sick car. I go to some of the... Um, Peter Auto events every mm. now and then. And there's a guy, um, I can't remember what it's called. Apologies if you're listening, you're probably not. Uh, but he, he has a Celine. Yep. And I'd not really come across them. Mm. And yeah, he has, I guess it was, his is a GT1. So I, yeah. I don't know how much, were there other Celines? Uh, there was the road car and the, and the race car, which was GT1 spec. So that picture up behind you, that's that's me. Uh, oh in, yeah, in front of my mate Darren Turner. Oh uh, nice. Uh, so that's that was uh, yeah. That the road car was designed and developed here. We built the first batch and then we did the race version as well. Um, so getting to race that that's at Spa twenty four hours actually. That photo up there. That um, is that is so sick. Yeah. So in terms of road car to race car development for something like that, um, how much does the car change? That was designed very much with race car intent off okay. the bat um a lot of the programs that we've been best known for in motorsport over the last few years is, is based on production vehicles so they will tend to look similar you know from an outside have mm. similar surfaces but they'll generally be pretty much entirely different certainly on the underside um one of the few motorsport programs we're doing now is in gt4 um so the car looks like a, a standard road car with yeah. a wing and a and a splitter on the front but you know the change to suspension the whole brake system is different the engine's different different gearbox entirely different electrical architecture so they are a, a very different vehicle but still quite cost effective actually yeah yeah because that, that that series has developed a lot hasn't it you, you were saying earlier you raced in sort of early gt4 mm. um where the cars at that point do they almost just kind of have a wing on and they, that was off of your end. Back, when I, back in my day, um, <laughs> they didn't even have wings. So uh, the, the kind of end of my professional race career was uh, in an Aston Martin in the European GT4 series. Uh, and that was a manual gearbox. Um, it had just had ABS come in. There was no aero at all you know, with those. Right, yeah. Um, and they were really very simple cars, but now they're, they're all paddle shift. They've all got a decent Was that an advantage? Force. That was an yeah, advantage, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I went through a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a few arguments with the brake system. Um, but yeah, I think three we went through. It was quite an expensive two years for, some... for, the, uh, for the fund of that was. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What was your favourite of the cars that you've raced? 
well, that's a, that's guess a tricky possibly one. Possibly for different reasons as yeah. well. There's, there's a, the Celine is, is one of them because that was you know, one of the highlights of my racing career was 2 a.m. in the damp on new slicks at Spa. Yeah. You know, doing 190 mile an hour down the Kemmel Strait. Um, going around the outside of people around Blanchimont. Um <laughs> That that's that that is my standout stint for me when I was racing. Yeah. Uh, post that, I've been fortunate enough to do a lot of uh, incredible historic racing for people. So this this, this image up here, that's uh, that's me again at Spa. Another at Spa. Yeah, Spa again. Um, that's in the Spa Six Hour, and that's in a Project Two One Four Aston Martin, which is owned by a private collector, and he's asked me to race that plenty of times. Um, and nice. That's that's a lovely car as well. Um, I've been very lucky to drive a lot of nice stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking around, and that's a nice, like, sort of different end of the spectrum. On, on my left, we've got the Celine, and then, yeah, this Aston. Yeah. Um, the, the Celine, I hear, when I sort of look at something like that, just as I think when I, I saw, possibly saw a road car at one point in time, I didn't expect it to necessarily, when you see the race car, kind of think that looks, that looks like it's going to be an absolute dog to drive. But I hear they were actually really, like, really good. Yeah, the the race Obviously car. Obviously, you guys The race car was right. mega. The road car was a bit underdeveloped, to be yeah. honest. So we, um, it was handed back to Celine to do the end of the development. It never really ended up quite what it should have been. Um, and for, I, funnily enough, I met a, one of our short wheelbase customers in uh, the USA last year and went into his collection, and he had a cherry red twin turbo oh, S7, nice. and that was actually the first road car I'd you know, been in the vicinity of for oh, 15 years or so, 20 years. They're cool things. How many do they make? I don't know. I'm not sure. Is it like 20 or is it like 100? I think if, it depends who you ask, whether it's the <laughs> ta tax man or the sales <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think we built six. Okay, that's that's yeah, the yeah. only bit I know. If you're about to buy some, one, there weren't very many. <laughs> <laughs> so you said when you... You know, one of the first projects you're involved with was the the Duke R. Mm. Um, I remember that when 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 was that? That was twelve years ago. Okay, yeah, I remember seeing that thing first like appear. I don't know whether it was at Goodwood or somewhere like that. And it's just one of those projects you look at and you go, "What earth is this?" <laughs> and then you see it driving, you're like, "This is awesome." I don't know what it is, but it's awesome. How did that project come about? So that that was um, one of those ideas that comes about between engineers and marketing people over a bottle or two of, <laughs> of wine. Um, and the, it, it was a way to show that the Nissan Duke had four-wheel drive and active torque and it was sporty and so on. And um, my suggestion that got me kicked under the table by our head of chassis <clears throat> was to try and shoehorn in the GTR powertrain. Um, so, yeah, Nissan marketing quite liked that. Uh, and we did the first one we did actually, or the proof of concept, because one of the big issues with the GTR, one of its big benefits but issues is it's hugely complex. You know, right. It, it's, at its time, it was so far ahead really of most other vehicles in, in terms of the electrical control and all the, you know, all the, all the systems and how they yeah. interacted. Um, so the big concern was how will we be able to get into a GTR and make it work? Mm. Uh, so we actually made a short wheelbase GTR. Okay. We, we we cut and shut a standard GTR, um, oh, nice. which which looked about as bad as you can imagine. But yeah. um, it did the job, and we we that 
prove that we could get in and we could tweak the systems enough to for it to not realise that the wheelbase was a foot shorter. Um, and when you make you take a GTR and you knock two foot out of it or whatever, mm. does is that? I presume that's not quite. You don't just cut it down the middle, remove some bits, and then reattach because presumably that doesn't quite work. No, well, we did for the for that for that, <laughs> that was purely a you know driving around a proving ground. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. was basically that that simple. Uh, in the Duke car, um, it was a whole new body pan and so on. Um, it, it, so it was it was it was proper in the in the cars, but the test tag was. Good fun. Did get some funny looks up at Millbrook. Yeah, I can imagine. And you, presumably that first drive as well. Like, is it got? It's got all the systems and whatnot from a GTR, mm. but just in a smaller chassis. I don't know. Like in terms of the electronics and stuff, can it work out? Can it adapt with with some help? Yeah. So that that's that's that was the big challenge. Really, right. the big you know, the physical engineering is is relatively straightforward um but yeah getting into the electronics and not it not realizing or you know fooling it so it doesn't know um but what it ended up was actually a really much more fun gtr that you could yeah. pitch in you could do massive slides you know <laughs> li literally backwards and get it to bring back because it because it was such such a shorter wheelbase and a bit of weight out of it as well um so it had all the all the good bits of a gtr in terms of the you know the blistering performance yeah. and the traction and whatnot but if you wanted to you could just scandy flick it and, do, <laughs> and was it quite spiky or not um one of the customer cars i drove with 1800 horsepower was quite <laughs> spiky um well that was uh one of our customers in the middle east and they uh they bought two yeah um one had 1500 the other 1800 and we uh, uh it was in the middle east um it was a royal family member, so luckily the rules of the road didn't particularly matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he took took me out in it and did a did a launch, um, and you could feel the whole vehicle just bending, you know, like oh, flexing because wow, yeah. of because of the performance. And it eighteen hundred horsepower is stupid. And it I really guess is. that's that's <laughs> that's what happens when you put let's say a GTR engine in, and you've got someone like Litchfield, not too far yeah, away, yeah. who will just go, yeah, there we go, blah 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 blah. blah. Change yeah. some stuff, blah blah blah. Yeah, and well, Litchfield is, is one of the people we work with. Oh, okay. Getting it to work because they, I mean, funnily enough, we the Malloc link with Skyline goes back. So my father started importing them in in the nineties. Oh, um, okay, yeah, because yeah. Because yeah. of the link we had, so in eighty nine and ninety, uh, we ran one of the Nissan Le Mans programs. Right, we had the link yeah. with them, and then through I think ninety one and ninety two, was it the thirty two? The R thirty two, I think. Uh, we imported some of those from from Japan, so there's lots of these touch points that you keep coming back to yeah, through, yeah, yeah, through yeah, a professional yeah. life, which is quite interesting. That is quite interesting. Do you still run some race team stuff now? No, no, we have. So when I took over, we were about ninety percent motorsport in what we were doing. Yeah, um, that was predominantly world touring cars, bit of BTCC, and some other sort of yeah other stuff. Uh, now motorsport is about 10% of our revenue okay. so we've got the GC4 program where we're supporting Lotus with that um, we still supply all the standard components for the British Touring Car Championship so all of the BTCC cars have the same uh, front row subframes suspension uprights steering rack and we supply all of those um, so that's a way to bring the cost down in the championship 
Um, aside from that, not much motorsport at all. So the rest of the projects that we're doing, uh, the sort of either high performance engineering, whether that's in battery design or yeah. something like that, or uh, continuation vehicles or the super luxury market with our short wheelbase. So many different kind of avenues. Yeah. With the um, the touring cars, how does that how does that sort of situation come about, and how do you end up doing all of the the standard supply and parts and stuff? Like, what is that process? So that was um, the idea was Toka's idea, uh, and we were actually the second supplier. So initially, for about the first four years, um, all the standardised components were supplied by another company. Yeah. Um, we were asked to tender for it, make some improvements, just bring the quality up a bit and make some engineering changes. Um, and I think we're now in year eight or so of our supply. Yeah. Um, because once it's there and it's done, you know, it's a cost effective way for the teams to to either run at events or build new cars. So when they build a new car, they can either take some of their some of those standardized components off and reuse them, uh, or they ring us and order, you know, a batch of components and build them into their own yeah. shell. Interesting. And do they, how often do they, does the spec, the sort of the, these base components change in a series? Is it like every like five years or something? Um, it, I think it was a five year kind of rolling arrangement. So it, it got to the end of our first five years and yeah. there was no reason to change. There've been some slight tweaks over the years. Um, I think they changed the tire spec a few years ago and that put some different loading through, okay. but it's, you know, really minutia stuff. Yeah. And I guess, do they, uh, fundamentally, they probably don't necessarily want the cars to necessarily get faster over time from now? Do they really? Or? Not, not, not really. You know, if something's good, you know, if it, if it ain't broke. Um, and they have in, introduced hybrid this year, um, which has been quite a big change. Yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the fundamental spec change to the championship. But other than that, it's, it's good, reliable, straightforward stuff. And, you know, the, the organisation want to make it as cost effective as possible. Uh, for all the competitors, so why, was, why bring out new stuff? You were saying as we were walking around that even though there's more spec parts and what whatnot to try and make it more cost effective, that's not necessarily worked. What? Why? Why is that not necessarily the case? Well, I think when the, when the uh, these new regulations first came out, the the intention was that though it could you know, it was going to be sub 100k to build a car. Um, engineers get in the way of that, don't they? <laughs> really? So uh, the spec parts cost what they cost yeah um but i think they ended up being about the same price as a super 2000 spec car as they as they were at the time the benefit now is 7 12 wherever we are years on it's the same fundamental bits so yeah. those bits are in the market you know it's there's not new cars being developed every year by different manufacturers and so on yeah um so that it brings the entry ticket down basically yeah yeah and i imagine race teams being race teams they're like we well, fix that so we're just going to take the rest of our budget and put it into the bits that are not fixed. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's how it works, isn't it? Yeah. Um, one of the things we saw when we were wandering around was the um, the Delta Wing Zero Emission on Demand. Yes, the Nissan ZRC. Yeah. Um, that were you involved in the first in the original Delta Wing? So in the Delta, yeah. So there's two projects. First is the Delta Wing. Uh, which Nissan came on board with um, and we were engaged to first of all do some simulation to make sure that 
you know the vehicle didn't fall over when you when you turned I right. Remember that? Um, that was the thing, wasn't it? it was yeah, like, it's just going to roll over. Well, you see, Mister Vina, yeah, and exactly. Robin, and the Robin Reliant, exactly. Yeah. So that that was the concern. Um, <laughs> so we did the simulation. We proved out the concept. Uh, we were then asked to supply an engine. So it's one point six direct injection turbo, hugely efficient, very relatively lightweight, uh, and then we ended up taking on is supporting with the whole engineering, the build of the cars and the running at Le Mans and post Le Mans. Um, and that was a great, great program for Nissan and for us um, because it was, you know, it was the star of Le Mans. Um, I remember it got fired off coming out the Porsche curves by one of the Toyotas. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and there are all these cartoons of yeah, the the other drivers, you know, lassoing the, the Toyota <laughs> driver and whatnot. Um, and it worked brilliantly. And that, that was a great period for us and Nissan of doing all kinds of stuff. So you know, it started, with our relationship goes back yonks, as, as I mentioned, but we did Ducar, we did the Delta Wing. And then from there, we span off into all kinds of other crazy PR cars. Mm. So we did a... We did a partnership with uh, Ministry of Sound, and we did the Duke boxes. See, see okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that had basically it was two two cars. You could press a button, uh, the boots would open, and they had uh, I forget what the power of the sound system was, but it was the same spec stuff that they from um, the supplier who put the sound systems into the club, into Ministry. Right. Yeah. And they would come out, and we did pop up parties. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, it was it was proper. So we tested it in the yard. Yeah. So we're we're sort of round a corner here in my office, and I don't know, 150 meters away from from the, the yard where the trucks are, 200 meters. Um, and it was shaking the glass in my window <laughs> when we tested it. Um, I mean, it was mega. We uh, we did a, a pop up party in the in the square at Le Mans, the the, oh, the year yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of Delta Wing. Uh, and we had some of the Ministry of Sound DJs there, and um, yeah, we had we ended up with the police sort of pushing everything off when it got to about midnight because it was there in the <laughs> pouring rain. But the, you know, it was it was yeah, it was cool. Um, we did lots of fun things like that. Just it was a great patch when Nissan wanted to show that they were fun and doing fun stuff. Yeah. And between us, we did some really cool stuff. And that is that is so like those sorts of things really stick in people's minds that like you see all sort of sort of marketing ideas that people come up with and like some just absolutely like win and some you have no idea when when you're like you don't have to talk about the specific ones but if a, a manufacturer comes to you and says we want to make a crazy kind of let's say duke r type you know project we're going to take a kind of mundane car but we want to do something badass with it i know there was a, a, a an mg recently yes um yeah. similar sort of thing yeah um, let, let's say i came to you and i'm like i've got this car can you make something insane what sort of budgets and i guess it's how long a piece of string but yeah, like yeah. get thrown at these sorts of things. if i came to you now and said yeah. make me something based on i don't know my e-class that i've drove, driven here but i want it to be mad and it to be excel at goodwood you, what sort of numbers are you going to come back yeah, to me with yeah, i can't i can't yeah, you know, it, it's it's so hard. You know, we've done things that raise range from, you know, low six figures into projects that cost tens of millions. Yeah, um, and it is all dependent on what it is. Um, but I really enjoy those yeah. kind of fun things, and so so does the team as well. So we've got an amazing engineering team here, 
uh, who have developed some of the most incredible vehicles, whether that's on track or on road. Yeah. Most of which we can't talk about, uh, which is frustrating. Um, but what really gets sort of the sparkle in the eyes is the the quick turnaround. Right, we've got to do this. Yeah, it's yeah, going yeah. to do this. What, it's, it's doing what? It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's those fun things that keep the team, you know, really sort of pumped up. And you see the energy when, you know, particularly if it's for a Goodwood or something like that, because you've got a hard stop. Yeah, yeah. It's like back in back when we were racing. You know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah qualifying doesn't move you know <laughs> yeah. the you know the the rollout the first event with with a car it has to be that day um the mg program is a good good example of that so that was uh goodwood which was what two weeks ago yeah and uh, that was the ex4 uh concept with the, which was inspired by the 6r4 yeah. so that was um designed styling wise by the saic design team uh, over here so mg's in-house design team and we worked really closely with them to come up with something that looked absolutely bonkers well, it's brilliant i was blown away when i saw it it really did look ace um but that was a really quick um this is what we want to do you know this is how we're doing it how can we get this pretty bonkers idea from a drawing board into real life um and the team did a mega job and turned it you know and what sort of timeline do you have on that sort of thing? Do you get a year? Or I, I imagine most of these oh, things... Oh, a year would be lovely. Yeah, uh, yeah they never <laughs> are. They never are. It's always like, oh, yeah, we've got four weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, could you just? <laughs> um, I t it, yeah. Timelines are never what you hope them to be. But Ducar, again, going back to that. So the first Ducar from concept to having the first car shown at an event in Spain was 14 weeks. Oof which is you know, horrendous. And I, it's one of those things where I walk around with potential customers and say, oh, this should take 14 weeks. And get slapped by an engineer. <laughs> you know, that's 14 weeks. That's a lot of pizza yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, late yeah. nights. Um, but then something like the electric hypercar that we, that we made for a Chinese manufacturer about seven years ago or so, um, that was 14 months from first concept, you know, drawing it in, yeah. in this office on a sketchboard. Uh, to it setting the electric rec uh, record around the Nürburgring, which is still a very short time scale. And that is, like, in, in terms of, let's say, a, a normal manufacturer, that could be four years. Yeah. I, I presume that's why people come to you, because someone, you know, whoever, Nissan, Nissan has the ability, if they wanted to, to make these things. But why do they come, you know, why do they come to you? So the, the reason people come to us is we are not an OEM, um, so we're not sort of constrained by some of the process. Okay. So, you know, there's all the, there's all the, you know, quantifiable bits of, you know, being very good at engineering and manufacturing stuff extremely well, so very high quality, but it's the kind of intangibles of, right, we need to do this, this is how we'll do it, and a bit yeah. of lateral thinking, but, you know, the, we're, what, 160 people overall in the business. Um, that's probably less than you know, the suspension design team have in, a, yeah. in an OEM. Um, and it just means that we can be lighter foot and quick and turn things around pretty quickly. Um, the short wheelbase project that we've, that we've done, uh, the first customer car is being delivered uh, next week. Uh, that was about 18 months of sketching and playing and concepting between me yeah. and, our, and our designer. Um, program started properly in September 2020 I think 
it was COVID time. Yeah. Was, you know, a few of us would come into the office with masks on and so on. So whenever that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, first car was, our car zero, our prototype was uh, last February. Um, and we're now delivering the first customer car. So that's kind of a three-year process-ish, somewhere in there. And wind back a little bit before that, that, that project, the RML, short wheelbase, is that mm. what it's called? Yep. Yeah. Um, where did this come from? Why? Talk me through it. So it started off as a very different project, actually. Um, so as we've kind of touched on and you've seen, for for ages we've been doing some amazing programs for different manufacturers but it's always white label yeah. so we very rarely could talk about what we do whether that's you know developing an all-electric hypercar or you know a track only variant of um you know a sports car manufacturer's top yeah. vehicle uh so i wanted to do a couple of things one was have something that we could talk about and showcase a bit Which of our capability yeah because yeah, it's um yeah, it's a great marketing tool because a lot of people don't know what the business does. Yeah. Um, but it actually started off as uh, as a hypercar concept. Oh, okay. So um, it was going to be a Malak hypercar. It was going to be front-engined. It was a twin-turbo hot VV8, uh, no hybrid, about 1,000 horsepower, loads of downforce, uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. You know, the, yeah. um, all the top trumps, nonsense yeah basically uh and that's what I kind of i kind of realized about two-thirds of the way so we'd schemed it out we'd done the initial design concept we had a, you know, a full vehicle layout in place and the engine concept was underway uh and i'd raised about two-thirds of the money which is you know, tens of millions of pounds yeah. to develop something like this uh, so it's going to be a kind of koenigsegg pagani type competitor right. um but then i sort of realized that i didn't actually want to do that um, the whole point of the short wheelbase and what it turned into is something that you can enjoy driving at normal speeds. So, you know, in a yep. Volkswagen Golf now, I can drive, if I chose to, I could drive from here to Cywell Airport, which is two miles away, and not drop under 80 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, because cars nowadays are just so just capable. Do it all, yeah. Um, so I thought, I don't want to do that. I don't want to build a car that you need a GP circuit to be able to enjoy. I yeah. want to have something that kind of celebrates the, the purity of driving, mm. which kind of gone away recently, you know, the last few years. I bought, I got a, what was it, the F80 M3 yeah. a few years ago. Um, and that thing, uh, you know, that, that had so much performance um, and so much capability that it's, it's just boring. And I, yeah, I yeah. was driving on, on an unrestricted road somewhere. Um, <laughs> Popped over to Mexico. Yeah, I thought, I thought this feels quite quick and looked down, I was doing 130 mile hour. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's ridiculous. So whole purpose of the short wheelbase is something we can talk about, something we can show, showcasing some of our capability, uh, something the team can talk about as well. Because, mm. you know, we've got all these people who are doing this amazing stuff, but they can't talk about it. Yeah, that must be annoying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, yeah, celebrating, you know, that, that the 50s, 60s era of design, which for me is the, you know, the highlight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, that, that enjoyment of driving, that's what it's all about. Nice. So, and then, so you start, you said you, you secured funding for this hypercar project. Is that, is that by approaching we customers? Did, we did give it back. 
Okay. Bollering. But is that by approaching customers or is that a mix of it, investors it, in RML it, and whatever? It's, it's a mixture. So that was, we've got a good, or we know a good client base of these kind of super luxury yeah. uh, products because we supply a lot of them. Um, and it was mainly through, you know, the potential customers and people wanting to have a bit of a pretty exciting project. Yeah. And that's how we funded short wheelbase as well. So, um, yeah, that was a lesser investment, but it's still many, many millions of pounds. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we uh, brought in an external partner on that who's someone who has got every car there is, yeah. loved the concept, wanted to actually have a bit more than just a car. Mm. So they wanted to be part of the journey and define what it is and so on and so on. That's, that's in terms of like, when I look at, let's just say you've got lots of money. When you, you go, the journey seems to be like, okay, you know, you order a conventional car from an OEM. Maybe you're a BMW M3 or something. You're like, I get to choose X, Y, Z. That was kind of fun, but then the car turns up and you didn't really got that involved. Then you go, maybe you order something from Porsche or Ferrari and you get to do the Taylor program and it gets a bit more involved. Then maybe you do a resto mod or something, mm -hmm. which you might have a year-long relationship with. And I, hear, I often hear, multi, I've heard multiple stories of people... They've ordered a car and they've had this two-year relationship with someone and it turns up and they're like, oh, okay, can I order another one? Mm. Like genuinely that situation. They're like, it's all right, but I kind of want to start this process again. And I guess yeah. this is like this is like the next level above, which is like, I want to do my own thing. Well, that's it. Yeah. Um, so you, know, you, you get the tailor-made and then there's the, the one-off Ferrari program, yeah, yeah, which yeah. you can do you know, if you want to spend enough, uh, enough money and you're selected to do yeah. it. Um, what... I found with both the customers of short wheelways and the investors in it in the program and the people that we we're talking to about investing they've got all these cars you know they've got yeah. Valkyries on order they've got SP1s and 2s and all this kind of stuff um, but then they get turned down for something <laughs> and then and they're like but I've bought all this stuff spent this amount of money yeah and so it's about, yeah, it's about having that ownership and having the ability to say to their mates, you can, you can have one of these cars. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Or having the ability to say, you no. can't have oh. one of these cars. <laughs> and that's the, that's the, yeah, the whole car side of it is fun, but the customer base for this kind of market, you know, if you're buying a, the short wheelbase is 1.35 net of taxes sterling. So yeah. it's, it's an expensive vehicle um, because of what it is. Um, but if you're buying that, you know, that's, it's not, um, it's not one of two or three cars in your collection. Yeah. You know, it's no, one it's of, not. it's one of several and, um, it's, yeah, it's about having something that's just a bit different to the LaFerrari that they've got next to it or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so how did you decide on the spec and what was going to be the base car uh, and all of those sorts of things. As I said, I wanted to have something that was a bit, you know, purer from a, uh, a an aesthetic and a driving perspective. And for me, my my favourite era of car design was the 50s, 60s. One of my favourite cars yeah. is the Ferrari 250 short wheelbase or the DB4 GT uh, Zagato or the Project Aston that's the picture of up behind you with those, you know, those classic Pininfarina, yeah. uh, Gigiotto lines, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... The idea and the con and the brief with 
our design team, so Jonathan Bowen, our, our lead designer, um, and we spent about 18 months, two years sketching before we kicked off. It was to, if we were doing a car of that type now, how would we do it? What would it be? Yeah. So it wasn't about trying to create a replica. That's not at all what the intention was. Um, it's not trying to be a pastiche. It's it's our take on that type of car from that era. Yeah. So that gives you some, you know, your starting lines. And then it's thinking about how you want, you know, what the driving experience is going to be. How's it going to be? And I had in my head driving from here down the road just behind us. I knew exactly what it, yeah. what it wanted to be. And that's a road, you know, my best mate from school lived at the end of it. Oh, uh, right, so yeah. when we were 17, 18, it was a road <laughs> we, we knew quite well. Um, and I, I knew I wanted something that had, you know, a beautiful long you know non non turbocharged just leggy yeah. engine that had to have a great sound manual gearbox absolutely so we're not we're not offering a, an automatic or a paddle shift yeah. won't do it that's against the the whole ethos of yeah. the car um and sort of figuring out what you know what we wanted it to be in that you know, front engine that narrows you down to a certain group of manufacturers um so we tried various different ferraris as the base car from 456 up to F12. Mm. Um, and for me, the 550 um, is at that kind of perfect knee point between a bit of electronic intervention, a bit of support, but it's still your right foot if you want it to be that, yeah, that yeah. tells you what you're doing. <laughs> um, and I'm, <clears throat> I was fortunate enough to borrow, borrow Powell's 550. Um, okay, I'll come, come back to 550 in a minute. But I, I drove out of here in it and turned into the roundabout and right foot down and it just did exactly what I hoped it would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we had a bit of a play with the suspension settings and figured out what we wanted to do and, and that was a really easy decision because it, you know, nice. it did what we wanted it to do. Um, so the short wheelbase uses the engine gearbox, some of the corners and a small amount of the central chassis of the 550. Mm. Um, the reason for that is so we can get, use the cars on the road in the USA. So that's purely okay. the reason. Yeah. From an engineering perspective, it's not what we would have chosen to do, um, but it, it opens up in the USA's biggest market for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. 550, I remember <clears throat> back in 1996, I think when yeah. the car came out, um, our, our business partner in RML at the time, Nikiri Koss, Hugh McCaig, um, he came to our house in, I think it was it was silver with I think red interior 550. Mm. I thought that is the most beautiful car. They are so cool, I mean, absolutely awesome. So using them now as a donor is slightly painful, <laughs> um, but you know we're most of the cars that we're using as donors are sitting, not being used. Yeah, you know. It's you know some people say it's heresy to be ripping up five fifties, but you know if something's sitting there and it's you know it's in the back of a garage, covered in dust. How many are you going to make as well? Thirty. Yeah, it's like it's, it doesn't it, matter, does no, it? No. Do you do you try and get ones that have been like? Do the, does the customer generally come and go? I've I've had a five fifty that actually let's start with, or they bought a five fifty and you're like just get a kind of crappy one, or how does that how does that work? We've got a pretty detailed spec of what it needs to be okay. um it doesn't need a nice interior or nice bodywork you know yeah. it's not it wouldn't be so our pricing includes a donor car so we will source the donor okay. car um 
the amount that 550s have gone up in the last three years, particularly <laughs> in the USA, has not helped the business case, but there we go. Um, so, it, you know, it wouldn't be sensible to go and buy a, an absolute minter because that right. is just a waste. So um, we the fundamentals need to be right. You know, we do engine tests on them all and so on and various you know, tests through the whole through the whole vehicle. But the elements that we keep need to be robust, but everything, whether it's good or bad, goes through a full rebuild anyway. So the engines uh, go into our powertrain department. They're stripped back to the cylinder liners. Um, they're dyno tested before that. First of all, rolling road tested, then dyno tested to give us a baseline. Then even if um, you know the engine was serviced a year ago, we do the full strip and rebuild just to make sure everything's yeah. right. Um, and interestingly, that they so when the 550 came out, I think it was 479 horsepower was the brake horsepower figure in the yeah, in the manual. That's what they said, yeah. Um, every car, whether it's a donor car or a reference car, we've tested has been about 410 to 420. <laughs> really, <laughs> but they're old. You know, the, the horses run yeah, away yeah, don't yeah, they, yeah, over yeah. over 20 odd years. Yeah. Um, the rebuilt ones are all between 470 and 475. So right, yeah, yeah. that's probably the closest they've ever been to, yeah, to yeah, that yeah, figure. Yeah, that number. And that's plenty uh, power-wise, actually. Funnily enough, when we did the first media tests um, back in February, March last year, uh, it was actually only getting three-quarter throttle. Um, oh, really? And, and no one noticed. <laughs> um, which was a relief. Um, um, but, it, but it's because it's that pair-back, you know, enjoyable driving experience. It's not... No, it's not all just flat out. So it felt fast, even only getting that, which was that's 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 a good that's a good one. Yeah. And did you know at the time that it was only three quarters throttle? I thought it was half. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we were a bit committed at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, no, but it was fine. So back to donor cars. You know, that's what we do with the engines. The gearboxes go through a full strip, full crack testing, full rebuild. There's some changes that we make as well. Um, so every component goes through that process, mm. anything that we reuse. And again, even if it's you know, if it was serviced two weeks before we bought it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a couple of customers who have got their own cars. We will source cars from the territory that the car's going to. So yeah. USA cars, we will purchase donors in the US, ship them back over here, do the, the work, um, which is, you know, it's a new car build. But it's... Um, Technically, it's a can be a restoration or something like that okay. for, yeah. for North America. Uh, it, it then goes back in. We've got uh, a couple of cars in the uh, customers in the Far East who have got 550s that are registered there. So we will be yeah. using that, um, bring that back in. It just helps smooth things out. Process. Do they have to do with any of these? Do you have to sort of pay sort of some sort of import or VAT or anything like that? Uh, in the middle of these processes, they're leaving anyway, so it's uh, yeah, it's in and out, so it nets out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the um, with the engine, so is it is the engine pretty much the same, or have you sort of rejigged it a bit? So no, it is? no, it's it's basically blueprinting the five fifty standard engine, so yeah. it's putting it back to as it should be. And the weight of the cars, what are they? What are they sort of coming out at? Um, some kilos less than a 550. I can't, I can't <laughs> Is remember. Is it like, like 100 kilos, yeah, 200 it's, it's kilos? between one and two. Yeah, about 200 kilos. Um, so the whole the whole body construction is, there's the steel lower central chassis, which is carried over and modified from a 550. Uh, everything up and out of that is a two-piece carbon fibre right. tub, effectively. So it is like a, you know, a McLaren or a 
Ferrari hypercar, you know, whatever in terms of construction of the body, yeah. uh, it just looks old. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. So the whole front and rear, uh, both front and rear clams together, not including the closures, weigh 42 kilos. Um, so incredibly lightweight. And that includes the integrated sort of safety structure as well. So there's not, you know, a steel roll cage like you'd see in some yeah. things. It's it's all contained within the carbon tub. So, you know, it, it is a modern construction method. Yeah. It's just got a bit of old Italian steel at the bottom of it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it just looks like a you know, an older style car. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a cool thing. It's a cool thing. I'd love to have a go at some point. We can talk about that some other time. <laughs> well, do, do well, the best that you you haven't seen um, the car that's shaking down today. So no. that is bright metallic yellow with oh uh, nice uh, uh, sapphire blue stripes and blue and yellow. And is that interior? Is that customer car number? That's, that's number one. Number one. Yeah, that is a that is a good spec. It's it's mega. How would you spec if are you are you having one? Um, I am. Planning on never selling Car Zero. Okay. Car yeah, car. yeah, yeah, yeah. And will that stay the same? It, it, okay, separate, slightly separate question. If you were going to spec one from zero, how would you spec yours? And well, how much latitude is there in spec for customers? Well, that's what I did with Car Zero. So Car okay. Zero was my spec, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's um, our take on Tour de France Blue. Yeah. Um, it's actually being registered as Malik Blue now. So we did nice. 17 different versions in the in our paint shop here, coming up with exactly the right mix. And so it looks it looks fairly TDF-ish, but then you get it in light and it's got the deepest pop. It, nice. it just looks awesome. Um, so the paint shop guys did that here, and yeah, that's being registered. And actually, two of our one of our customers is is using Malik Blue on their. I think it's a. Bugatti Bleed and a, oh, and, a nice. ben, and a Bentley something as well. So they that's cool. We've had to give them samples of Malik Blue, and that's because they wanted to match their short wheelbase. Nice, which is, which is cool. That'll be cool getting them all together. Yeah, yeah. Sure, that'll happen yeah, at some yeah. point. No, that's the plan. So that's that's blue over tan, basically is yeah. the spec of short wheelbase uh, car zero. Um, yeah, so that's our prototype. That's the test hack, if you like. That's a proof of concept, which is. Directionally, it's a it's the same spec as a customer car, but the customer cars are, or the customer specification vehicle is so far ahead of the of car zero, mm. just in terms of all the elements that make a car what a car needs to be. So, hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, the fit and finish, the door shuts, um, all the touch points. You know, it's, it, 
everything is bespoke on the interior, for example. But the prototype car, um, it was a, it's going to be roughly like this and yeah. using the right materials, but just not quite right. So yeah. the refinement on the on the production spec cars is mega. Um, which means we're going to have to spend a fortune uplifting car zero <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, to get yeah. it up to where it is because it's actually now it's actually now almost damaging because it's it's you know, so it, far off exactly yeah um, but the uh, it's been quite fun doing that specking process with the guys with the customers yeah um, and it varies from you know one of the one of the cars the car car three the grey one that you saw mm-hmm. um, that was one phone call and he said I want it to look like the one in the brochure (laughs) (laughs) that's it which was dark grey red and black leather interior bright chrome Um, the yellow one we went through seven or eight different yellows same number of blues all the different leather options and that was actually outside of our standard offering of of leathers and coming up with that then we had to do stitching for the malak shield in the headrest in the contrast and contrast stitch and you know an additional stripe on the sensor console and all that kind of thing yeah yeah um because we're building 30 cars and because it's you know they're hand built still yeah um we can be you know pretty much entirely flexible um we offer a standard offering of leathers there's I don't know, 20 yeah. or so that they can choose from but if they want to go outside that that's fine we've got three sort of chrome finishing options which is a, a bright chrome kind of a satin chrome called noble chrome uh, and black as well um colors is any color that you want yeah, um, yeah, yeah. because we we do all the paint in house we mix it all up uh, so we'll do various different samples um and it's been quite fun going through that process with some of the customers and the variants. You know, it, it goes from yes, I'll have that to you know, one of the cars actually went through uh, paint, and then he spent two months deciding if he did actually want that, that <laughs> color. Fair, fair, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a fun process. And I mean, car car one, I wasn't sold when it was yeah. you know, the first I like, yeah, mm-hmm. no, 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 really really metallic yellow and, and blue stripes yeah let's do that and blue and blue and yellow interior but that way it looks mega um, it was going to have rose gold metal work at one point but um, these, it's fortunately not because I, I think that may have been a step too far these things are so tricky though because I if you'd asked me to spec a car maybe three years ago I, I think I, it would have come out very much like yours you know, like a dark blue, tan. I would have been undenied about that specific type of blue because um, maybe this is the sort you can tell me that goes through your head. When I might look at like TDF and go, well, I quite like TDF, but like it's not that blue when you actually look at it. It mm. can be really dark. So like then you go down the wormhole of what exact paint and you're like, well, that's that gets tricky. Yeah, like someone, I, I want a grey car. Yeah. Right. Which grey? Which grey? <laughs> which, which, like, which one of the hundreds of greys <laughs> would you would you like? Yeah. But then you get like I imagine your customers are definitely in this category. They've specced a lot of cars. They own a lot of cars, so they've probably done. If it was me, I've done four navy tan cars. Mm. I might have done a green tan car, and then you're like, right, okay, now we need to start mixing this up because I can't have them all the same. Mm. So then you and you kind of go, my brain can't compute the specs that people come up with because I'm just like, well, obviously that looks horrific. And then it turn, it turns up and you're like, I mean, I didn't think that that 
version of pink with that whatever yellow interior or whatever it is. I didn't think it would look good, but I kind of like it. It, it. it works. It's kind of cool. Well, I think what, what tends to happen um, you know, with us and with other people, so our, our specking process is we've got what we call the lookbook, which is you know, a big square book over there. Yeah. That's got 10 different versions of the car in different specs, you know, just to give some inspiration, yeah, yeah, yeah. different stripes, all that kind of stuff, different interior, some full Alcantara interior from some leather. Da, 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 da. So we'll send them that. Um, Ask them for their initial thoughts. You know, what roughly do you want? Um, then we'll do a one-to-one session with the designer, and it's all on uh, in, in a sort of online configurator yeah. type thing, but with full virtual reality, and it does oh, full okay. rendering as it goes. Oh, cool. So quite often there'll be, yeah, I want pink and blue, yeah. whatever. Um, but it, we tend to sort of guide to get the right versions of those to make it complementary, yeah, make yeah, it work. Yeah. Um, and that's the same with every manufacturer. You know, no designer wants to see a version of their vehicle that isn't good. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you can get most things you know, to work together well, as long as you get the right tones of things. So yeah. um, there tends to be quite a bit of hand-holding and nudging in the right direction. Um, and you can, yeah, some of the craziest combinations that you think of do actually turn out looking really good and that's just because it's the right tweaks and the right versions of those little bits yeah exactly like having someone whose eye is like spot on for getting combinations right and having unlimited choice is is a nice idea but when i know for example if i'm specking something even if we just look at this thing in front of us it's like well okay it's black and then we've got silver hardware and we've got one bit of gold hardware and you're like Maybe I want that. Maybe I don't want that. But like, I have no idea whether it looks rubbish or not. And then someone might be able to go, yeah, probably don't, probably don't mix those two or something. Or oh, what about this? Yeah, and you just you, adjust you the hues this, yeah. of the different things, and they get a bit closer. And you're like, oh yeah, okay. Um, I, I'm quite, I'm quite boring when it comes to my <laughs> specs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think all the cars I've had over the last few years have just had all black interiors. Right. Black, yeah. Black, 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 black. black. But that's mainly because of kids. Actually, yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> kids, yeah, yeah, kids and a dog. It's clean, yeah, leather yeah, it hides it well. Yeah. Um, you guys have done some sort of continuation series for mm. some manufacturers, yeah, um, and I imagine that's a sort of similar sort of process. The, the manufacturer might be able, actually. I don't know. Actually, uh, would manufacturers be able to do some of these things? Well, one of the first. Two big continuation programs were Aston Martin and Jaguar with the E-Type. Yeah. And Jaguar did a chunk of it in-house okay. uh, in their classic area. Right, yeah, yeah, The yeah. Aston programs were managed by Aston Martin Works over at Newport Pagnell, yeah. which is just down the road from here, actually, um, which is actually where Ray, my father, started his oh, really? career. He started as an apprentice oh, at Newport cool. Pagnell. Um, but they tend to work with partners and specialists, which is the same as if they're doing a modern car. Yeah. You know, um, no car company does everything themselves. You know, they work with partners on powertrain or on suspension or yeah. ABS or da da da. So it's the same with continuation cars um, to a greater or lesser extent. And we have supported a few different manufacturers to different extents. Uh, on some programs, we uh, we were responsible for chassis and body and suspension and so on. Uh, for one of our other programs that we're, we're supporting, we're supporting that match manufacturer with their relaunch, um, and we are responsible for the whole vehicle. So we will 
literally pull everything together and have a car rolling off the end of the production line every couple of weeks. And and how does that that sort of work? Someone comes to you and says, "Okay, I want you to make a a car that looks exactly like this, possibly spec wise. Literally, I want you to make one of these cars." And then you're like, "Cool, we can do that." How do you go from there's a car to so continue, presume you don't get the CAD files? No, <laughs> no, the the, um, the filing systems in the fifties and sixties weren't, weren't great. Um, <clears throat> it, it does vary a bit. So what we have done with programs we've been involved in, we have had access to a couple of the original cars. Um, we have scanned those. We've gone through. We the team do months of research. Uh, which is made from books and you know, yeah. videos and photos and all this kind of stuff to look at what the cars that you know that vehicle was in period um, and understand what that is. Uh, by by the by the end of it, if there's a pub quiz on any of those yeah, vehicles, yeah. you know my team will smash it because they they know everything, they know you know, everything. Down, down to the color of the wheel caps on you know at this particular race. And do you have to pick a particular sort of like year date? of the car because i imagine let's just say it's uh, made in italy like there might be some variants amongst the cars built uh, or if some of them raced then they they get different versions of them well like, the, the cars that you scan now uh if it's a 1960s car it's 50 60 years old so yeah it's been crashed and rebuilt <laughs> yeah. seven times you know it's triggers broom isn't it it's five, five yeah. new heads and three three new handles exactly um so it's it's you have to pick what is the you know the master sample yeah um and basically what we what we would try and do so on one program we were lucky we had over a thousand original drawings okay cool um which was awesome because the guys could sort of pour into them and they had you know the original handwritten notes from yeah. the design team back then of the road version has this and the race version it has it's this metal and it's drilled out for lightweighting and all that kind of okay, stuff okay nice um but you kind of pick the master spec so you have to say this is what the design intent was yeah. for the car in period. Um, we've had <laughs> we've had vehicles here that were scanned for for continuation programs, and uh, I remember one had a door three inches shorter on one side than the other. Um, you know, there was up to two inches in difference of suspension points. Oh wow! Um, because they've been crashed, or yeah. they've been you know put together on a Friday afternoon exactly. by, by a tipsy Italian or something in 1958 or wh whatever it is. Um, so it's picking that master spec and defining what it is, but then making it for modern times. So, you, you know, you can't sell a car nowadays that has a fiberglass body and no roll cage, for example. Yeah. It's just, you, you can't do that. It's, it would be inappropriate to do so. Um, or a car that has fuel tanks in the seals and aluminium boxes. Yeah. Um, that doesn't go down well, you know, or go, it would go up very well. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's it's a case of picking what the car should have been and then dialing in that level of safety so it's appropriate for now and usable for now, but in a, an empathetic way. Mm. And, you know, just using better materials, better quality. Either on the programs where we su support with chassis for some of these continuation cars, the, the whole chassis... Um, from front to back, the whole welded assembly uh, is within a tolerance of two and a half millimeters. Um, yeah. And that's on a full welded, you know, four or five meter long thing. Uh, suspension points are accurate to within half a mil. Uh, and that's because we can do that now. Yeah. 
Whereas in period, you know, when my, when my father was building DB6s uh, down at Newport Pagnell, um, you know, half an inch was probably a tolerance. Yeah, yeah. Not, not that's good enough. Mil. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I, have, it's, I have this interesting sort of like take on when you get a sort of modern, because the, the cars, I think, well, you've done different ends of the spectrum. You've done some that are like a, a take on an older car, but it's, it's, it might have a carbon body on it or... Mm. And then some are more sort of exact. A car that was built today as like a sort of, let's just say, as a sort of tool room copy type situation yep. is going to drive more like the original than any original you can buy. Yes. Which I think a lot of people look at these things and go like, yeah, it's a copy, it's a, like, you know, whatever. And be like, but actually, it's the purest you're going to get to what it was originally intended to be. Yeah. It will be better than any original would be have been better, in but, period. And closer to what it was meant to be yeah. than any car you buy now. Yeah. Even with a full restoration, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Because it is the design intent and with the tools and the people that we have around us and the processes that, yeah. that didn't exist 50 years ago, um, you can actually build what's on the drawing board rather than something that's close to it. And then you've got the flip side of it and you can go, it doesn't, it doesn't have the, the actual history of like... This was driven by so-and-so and crashed by so-and-so. And you know what it's like to drive with your hands slightly adjusted for, to go in a straight line. <laughs> so you've been involved in a lot. You do a lot of EV stuff now. Yeah. yeah. What sort of project type things are you involved in in that space? So we've, uh, that's one of the areas we've really invested in a lot over the last decade, pretty much. Mm. Um, so our first hybrid program was the Nissan Zeal. We mentioned earlier yeah um which was the first car to do an electric lap of Le Mans so it did yeah. a full full lap uh, at the same speed as the G same lap time as a GTE car did 300 kilometers an hour in a straight line um you know back then the battery that was in that was about 150 kilos and it had the same amount of energy as about three and a bit kilos of unleaded so <laughs> things have moved on a bit Not a lot now. yes um and we have supported various manufacturers with either concepting of new batteries that might be coming into production okay. in a few years' time. Yeah. Um, or you know, we've done a full EV hypercar for a manufacturer and we built um, 16 versions of that and a load of spare batteries as well. Uh, we're supporting a customer at the moment, which is going to be the, the highest performance battery that you can purchase anywhere. It's basically a Formula One specification battery right. in terms of the capability and the output. Um, but at the other end of the scale, we do off-highway uh, batteries as well and things for, for not actually even vehicles. It's the battery construction and so on is the same, whether it's going uh, into okay. a, a three million pound hypercar or a you know a automated dolly that's used for testing um, various systems. Uh, uh, okay. Um, so we started getting into EV because, or we started getting into batteries um, because we couldn't find a supplier who could do what we wanted. Right, yeah. It's a niche business, very much. It's the fundamentals are really simple. It's a battery cell. You stitch them together. You stick those two bits together, and then yeah. you got a battery. Um, but as with all these things, it's the detail uh, of the integration, how it all works, that mm. makes them either really good or just average. Um, and there hasn't been, or the you know, certainly for the period where we started off, there isn't another supplier who can do low volume special batteries. Um, you know, you've got the gigafactories at one end and yeah. know, JLR are building theirs down in 
Somerset or wherever yeah. it is. Um, but that for a low volume manufacturer or a sports car manufacturer isn't going to come up with the batteries that they need to fit their purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for doing electric Range Rovers, it'll pump those out all day. Um, you know, there's a factory up in Sunderland where they do the, the Nissan batteries uh, for the Leaf and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But if you want to build, or if you're a manufacturer building a 200,000-pound hybrid supercar, yeah. there isn't really a, a good provider there, or there hasn't been. Um, so that, that's why we've invested so heavily, and that's where our niche is. It's in the lower volume, higher value product um, where you know, it's a higher value sales price so you yeah. can afford a bit more spend. Um, and that's where, yeah, that's where we fit in. So um, we're supporting lots of different people for that. And the intention is um, we've got a kind of investment roadmap to put us as, uh, I want us to be the, the key go-to supplier for those people, you know, for the low volume manufacturers. There's regulation coming as well that um, a certain amount of your vehicle needs to be locally sourced as well. Yeah, which is a problem for BEVs. Yeah, so I want to solve that problem. That's yeah. that's the intention. That's what we've got a roadmap to do. Um, uh, yeah, the guys have got some amazing um, routes to getting a high-end battery but still hitting the price point that it can go into. Right. Yeah, so it's quite quite cool, quite exciting. And what sort of things have changed... Uh, in versus, you know, these uh, a battery you're making for a bespoke, low production type situation with a lot more, you know, you can put a lot more money into it mm. versus, I don't know, your standard sort of, let's say, Tesla battery versus what you, the sort of things you might put into, you know. Whatever. Whatever. So, yeah, a high end. So um, the basics are the same. Uh, most of them most of the batteries nowadays tend to be the cylindrical ones, so yeah. 21700 or so. That's, it's like a big AA battery. Yeah. Um, the ones that Tesla and other manufacturers are using now are more like the big is it the D batteries. You know, yeah, they're yeah, fatter, they're like yeah. fatter, shorter yeah, yeah. ones. So yeah. they're, they're moving into that, but it's the same basic idea. Um, we've, we've done batteries with pouch shells, which some people still use yeah. as well, um, which is, you know, it's like a big DVD case sort yeah. of thing with tabs at the top. Uh, or there's prismatic which is like a uh, a video box you remember those vhs's yeah yeah, yeah yeah so that that box so they're like that but most people are, are the cylindrical cells now um the big the big variance is tends to be the cell chemistry really yeah um and that's what drives the cost of a lot of the cell changes so the changes in cells and which drives the change in the battery so in a bev battery you've got thousands of cells yeah if you're an OEM, you're paying, you know, cents, sub a dollar for, for each of those cells. Yeah. Um, at our level, it's a struggle to get sub $5 for a cell um, just because of volume and supply issues. And is that a similar cell? It's similar, yeah. Uh, at the other end of the scale, the cells in the battery that you saw yeah. earlier, um, each of those cells are over £100. Each, okay. Each cell. <laughs> um, and what's, what can they do that the others can't? They can pump out a load more energy or, and or power a lot quicker. So you know, that battery system is, is up to 200C discharge, which is you know, where Formula One is and has been. And that's about a factor of 20 or so 
better than what's in a broker. And that's how quickly you can put power in and take and get, power and out. get it out. Yeah. And does that mean a battery like that? You plug it in. We're not going to see fifteen hundred volt chargers because that's just insane. Mm. Um, so, in terms of the the charging, I guess you're going to max out at whatever whatever charger is is the discharge that's fine. Well, and to an extent, any regenerative um, oh, okay. charging as well, of course. But that's lesser. So it's more, it's more about the out, yeah, the outflow. You can chuck which, of course, out. is the important bit. Significant amounts of power. Yeah, yeah. exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then I guess actually also it must have some charging benefits because if if it can take power at whatever, let's just say a hundred percent, but mm. your even your three hundred and fifty volt charger is uh, kilowatt, yeah, kilowatt so, charger. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. is thirty five percent of the max. Yeah, it's, you're going to be able to put in that at three hundred fifty. Yeah. until it's full ish. That, that, yeah, that's if you find a three fifty that which that, that's that's working many, and yeah. I'm working at that level. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that that for me is the issue with with Bev's going forward. It's the, it's the whole infrastructure thing. That's the big that's the big challenge. Um, do you see? Yeah, how do you see? And from your perspective, of being involved in different parts of it, and I know lots of high end. You, you've got a Bev that's your daily. How do you sort of see this going in different solutions? Um, I think batteries are part of the solution, but not the whole solution. Um, you know, I've I've Got a Bev, I've got a Taycan, which is an amazing car. Yeah. Brilliant car, love it. Um, I've also got an X5 to drive to our place down in Devon because <laughs> the Taycan won't get yeah. there. Um, and so Bev's are incredible, um, but there's the cost of manufacture. There's, then you get into the, the, you know, the whole pre-manufacture and the, you know, the ethics of where some of the materials are coming from and yeah. what's the end of life stuff and all that kind of thing. Um, but from a pure use perspective, um, I still get nervous when I get under hundred miles on the range, yeah. which is bonkers. Cause in, you know, in, in, in my, the, the, uh, the SUV I've got, I've got a, um, we've got a 911 uh, as well, which yeah. is, which is cool. Are yours outside? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Again, silly. Far too fast. Yeah. yeah, yeah Ridiculous yeah. that anyone's allowed to buy it. <laughs> um, but yeah, separate thing. Um, but in that, you know, I'll happily drive around with less than ten miles range. Yeah. But in a bear, it, it's yeah, it's amazing the range anxiety that you, even when it's completely irrational. And then you get into you know, we were uh, we were on holiday in Devon last week with the family and came up. We went in our diesel SUV. Yeah. Um, um, when we stopped at the service station, every charger was full, and there was a queue. And that's you know that's the issue. Um, so for me, batteries are part of the solution. I think we're going to end up with um, sort of hybridised vehicles where you can have zero emissions in city, but then an onboard charger of some sort, whether that's a combustion engine or yeah. hydrogen fuel cell or one of those sort of things. Um, you know, the issue with hydrogen again is the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, so. I would expect that we will end up um, with sort of serious hybrid vehicles with uh, synthetic fuel of some sort. That would be my guess because the infrastructure is already there. You know, we've got thousands, millions of petrol stations around the world with these big tanks under the under the forecourt, which you can it's just true. pour liquid into, and whether it's petrol or it's a synthesised petrol. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that's my view. I mean, 
I'm I'm wrong, of course, because you're always <laughs> wrong on any of these when you're looking 20 years into yeah, the future. Yeah, you see how it, how it pans out. Yeah. I definitely, so I have a small EV um, and I did not drive that here today. I could have actually, but I didn't, um, space-wise. I love charging at home. I like having a full tank. Mm. The range is not massive. So on my E2A, it's like probably about 150 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, but just literally, I get in that car and it's full pretty much any time I get in it. I never go to a petrol station. I quite enjoy that. I haven't got a drive. Ah, so you do you charge here? I charge here, yeah. So I've got a garage, but yeah. it's about three inches too long uh, oh. to fit in the garage. Um, so yeah, it was it was quite a bit of a leap really to yeah. do that because I, I don't have a drive in front of my house. I park on the street. Um, it wouldn't be appropriate to run a cable across yeah, the path, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, but I've got, there's a public charger three streets back from my house. Okay. So that's my full, you know, my full back yeah. that I go there. But, you know, when I was walking, when, when the onboard charger failed in January and I was oh, <laughs> walking dear. back in the rain, albeit um, <laughs> for two minutes, but in the sleet, that, that yeah, took, takes the shine off that. That um, is not, that's not the optimum solution. It, I, what's interesting is I found myself driving differently in everything on the road now. Yeah, Re- much more sensitive to throttle inputs and all that kind of stuff. I've always, um, I've always been quite a good driver, you know, because yeah. that's what I do. But I've noticed that I'm much more sensitive to that, and it's it's funny when when my wife drives the car. It's about twenty percent more energy she uses. Really? Because it's you know more the traditional on off on yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the guys did take one of our customers down to the airport in in it the other day and got um, used fifty percent less energy than I've ever used. Wow. Um, but <laughs> I think that's that's more to do with the speed. Yeah. But it's yeah, it's amazing how it changes, or for me, how much more attuned to using energy I've been in in. It on the road, which has got to be good all round. Right? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's it's actually a really interesting effect I've I've found. It's like I know a lot more about energy now mm. because I'm tangibly I know what's going in, and we don't have these weird mix of units that we seem to have in the UK with like gallons, but I put it in in liters and all that sort of stuff. So you don't really like you know you're using less or more, but within in an EV because they're so efficient. If you're driving inefficiently, you knock off so much range. Mm. So you get that instant feedback of like, oh, okay. And it's it's kind of like, but I might not get there mm. if I drive inefficiently. Where the petrol car, you just, you just, it's the same stuff, but you're just, you're not attuned to it because you're yeah. used to just filling up when you fill up. Well, and because you've got 300 miles. And you might have 300 miles. 500 miles, whatever it is. So it's less of an issue. So using that bit more energy, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But when you're using 5% more energy and you've only got half the range, that's... Yeah, like using you know ten percent or twenty percent of a of a six hundred mile tank. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's the difference between sixty five and seventy mile an hour as well. It's a huge difference. Mm. And wind I, and air are horrible things. <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that is a mental one actually. The and especially all cars nowadays, or not all cars. Lots of people drive big SUVs, mm. and their aero profile. Mm means that your 65 to 70 is a huge difference. Whereas if it was all super slippery, concept car type yeah, stuff, yeah. you would have a significant less, less, less of an effect. But no, it's, it's massive. But stick your hand out the window at 
70 mile an hour. Yeah. And it's, yeah. You're like, oh, oh, yeah. it's quite solid. Yeah. <laughs> I keep telling the kids that. I'm trying to educate the kids on it and get their, their understanding of what, what it all means. What do you mean the air is slowing us down? Is it, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So I, I normally wrap these up with five questions. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Um, yes. <laughs> um, so when I was 18, me and two of my best mates went to do a ski season. Oh, in, nice. In Val d'Isère. Oh, um, so, did you, really? Well, we got sacked after a week. Um, <laughs> so it didn't, it didn't work out very well. Um, but we went out there. For one of the guy's fathers uh, had a garage that was a, a Jeep dealer. So we had a Grand Cherokee. So a few years old. Yeah. You know, not quite the wooden down the sides, but a, yeah, a, yeah, an yeah. older one. Um, and for some reason, I think that you know, we went on the tunnel and the cheapest one was at sort of five in the morning. So we left, you went, yeah. left Northampton at 2 a.m. I was like, for some yeah. stupid, oh, it's much cheaper, we'll do that. So drove through the night and uh, I, we, we were, um, where were we? Somewhere in, in France near you know, Annecy or whatever, coming down a hill and yeah, it's been a boring old drive. And three of us and a load of bags, you know, suitcases in the back. And we're like, right, let's do a high speed challenge. <laughs> let's see what we can get out of the old Cherokee. So there's a you know big long straight road. There's a there's a truck half a mile in the distance or something. You know, downhill, mega right windows, up, air con yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Down we go. It's like oh, 112. Oh, 115. Oh, look at it. And. Uh, then the lorry in front of us got to the, the um, roadworks, so I pulled into the fine oh. our lane. So I jump on the anchors, pick up, you know, pick up one of these. And my mate who was in the back um, got an imprint of a suitcase in the back of his head. <laughs> um, yeah, so probably not the answer you were expecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, that's a that came straight to mind. <laughs> uh, nice, nice. I, I, I can't remember what it was. Actually, no, it was a set of skis. What is it about ski trips that imprint this in your head? That slamming like, on the brakes. Literally imprint it. In yeah, the, in slamming your on your brakes with stuff in the car. If you've got a set of skis like slotted down in between mm. the seats mm. and you slam on the brakes, that's it didn't quite go through the windscreen, but it was close enough. And I think that whoever was the passenger like let across and managed to like catch the tips of these skis before you're like, oh, okay. So I, I now put the net up in the back of the car yeah, more often yeah, than not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> funny times. If you could only drive one sports car for the rest of your life, what would it be? That's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so we've got 911, yep. like I said. Um, Turbo. Turbo S. Turbo S. Cracking thing. Car I've wanted since my one of my best mates started to go on when we were about 13. Oh, nice. Uh, okay, so how's the reality of... How's the reality been? Um... It's it's an incredible car. It's phenomenally capable. It's it's ridiculous that yeah. that you know you and I and anyone else can just go and buy that car yeah. and be allowed to drive it. Um, but it's it's just it's just mega. It just does what it does, and you can. We've, I've had four kids and a Labrador yeah. in it, and nice. thirty six <laughs> bottles of wine in the front boot. I think <laughs> so. It's yeah. It's it's a really good car. Um, I had a current generation Vantage a few years back. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Um, and it you know, wasn't finished as a vehicle. Yeah. You know, missed that last bit of development, <laughs> didn't it? You know, you know what I mean? It's got those little squeaks and rattles and wasn't, wasn't quite right. But 
I really miss it now because it's got so much more character. Right, yeah. Um, and the day I I moved it on, um, it was January, seven degrees, drizzling, and I went for a quick, you know, quick blast in the just out in the yeah. the country roads that I know. Um, and it's brilliant. I loved it. Um, and I can't do that in the Turbo S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's got so it's like, much capacity. It's too good. It, it is, yeah. Um, I took it on, on track at Silverstone, actually, the, the nice. Turbo S. Um, and I did one time lap with, my, with a pal in the passenger seat on road tyres, literally as it is now. Um, and it was 10 seconds off the GT4 race car lap, <laughs> lap record. I mean, it's... it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so Mind-boggling. So I, d- I don't know. I don't know. Do I want a sports car that's... Is it my only car? This is your... Or you've only got sports a, car? You've got like a banger on the side that you can chuck luggage in and whatever. Yeah, I might, I might, I might go Vantage. Nice. Just silly, fun. I'm really looking loud. forward to... Like, like a current, current gen. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this sort of reinvigoration of the, the cars that seems to be coming with, we've had with DB12. And I'm, I'm hoping mm. the Vantage gets like a similar sort of like kind of slightly rowdiness improvement. Yeah. Which I, I'm sure will happen in yeah. infotainment D- and whatnot. It, it, it needs it. DB12's mega, isn't it? It's a big step. I've, cool. I've, I've not looked, driven one yet. I've but, not driven it yet, but I've heard really good things. And the, yeah, the DB11 drove really nice, particularly the V8. Mm. Um, the V12 had too much suspension movement and you could feel it sort okay, of yeah, doing, yeah. doing like that. You've got a load of basically torque steer almost when, when, he, when <laughs> nice. he got on the gas. Um, but yeah, DB, I had a look at the DB12 the other day. I was, in, mm. I was in New York and walked past. They've got a new Q oh, thing okay. in New York. Yeah. On, um, uh, and it's really nice. It's got infotainment that does actually look like it works and so on because that's the bit that's been missing for Aston for the last 100%. 15 years or so you know, 20 years you look in a DBS and a, a friend of mine had a DBS Volante for like a, a week he mm. was writing an article or whatever and um, I think at the time I had an 812 around about that time and like you put the two next to each other and like the oh, DBS is a sick looking car yeah and on paper you're like it's cool and then you get in the interior and you're like, no, 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 no. This is not the same category it, it, as what the Ferrari interior was at the time. Yeah. And it, it feels like with the DB12, it's there. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, cool, great. Yeah. Now we can sort of stop talking about the infotainment and yeah. whatnot. Yeah, absolutely agree. Although, at least it hasn't got those funny haptic buttons everywhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ferrari's gone too far. Everyone's gone too far on that. Well, this is part, uh, on short wheelbase, this is part of what... What I wanted to do is so everything has an actual button yes. that does something. It's got a seven-inch screen. If you if you press a button, you know, yeah. a glass and an aluminium button, it comes up out the dash. Okay, it's got Apple CarPlay. It's got reversing camera. Yeah, it's got all your touchscreen stuff on there. But if you don't want that, that's not there. But not also the way the Vantage and maybe like a Cayenne has of like. Four thousand buttons. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's about eight we've got down in the centre. So yeah. that sounds like some, a good yeah. amount. Um, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What should be worth more? Um, RML short wheelbase. Yeah, obviously. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> outside of uh, outside of, of that, RML. Um, all the, the, the whole values of everything seems to be bouncing around all over the place over it's the last couple of years. Tricky. Yeah. Um, Aston Martin V8s from the 70s mm. and the early 80s. Not a driven one, but I, 
Like, I like them. Yeah. I've not driven one. Do you need to drive them? They just look mega. I think that's probably what you do with them. Yeah. You, you drive them, but you, they're just wafting around. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, they just look really good. They just look really good. Yeah. I think that sort of shape, that sort of boxy design is so much... Like, if you... I think it's when you look at supercars and then how they fit in with modern normal cars or mm -hmm. normal cars of the period. At that time, everything was boxy. So mm. like, you know, they're kind of the same. But we've got now all of our modern cars are all swoopy and not the supercars because they've all gone a bit like yeah. But so sw swoopy, blamangey cars. Whereas you put all these boxy cars in the middle of them and you're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I love what Aston done with the Balan. Mm. That's, oh yeah, yeah, that's cool for me. And the the Victor before, yeah, I've not seen the Valley. I didn't, didn't go to Goodwood, um, but the Victor when I saw that, I was like, whoever came up, whoever thought of this and came up with this, this is sick. Yeah, yeah. Most interesting car to you at the moment? Googling, looking up. I guess it's possibly a project. The most interesting bit for me is actually the technology that's around in stuff. So okay. I'm I'm not particularly fascinated by anything. Yeah. At the moment, there are certain elements that do fascinate me. Mm -hmm. So things like like what Tesla have done with the cost of battery systems, right? That kind of thing, um, because I know how complex they are and yeah, how expensive yeah, yeah. they aren't. They should be, uh, and seeing how you know what well, Tesla. I'm not a fan of the product. Yeah, you know, I, I don't really like them. Um, I, like, we had a Model S for a bit a few years ago, and my daughter came and sat. Yeah, sat in the passenger seat, and within half a mile, she said, "What? Well, why does this feel like a toy car?" Because <laughs> it does. Yeah, it? You know, it's it's an amazing tool, but um, it's yeah, it's missing a load of that that sort of quality thing. So I'm not a fan of them from that side. But what they have done, oh, unbelievable, is coming in from nothing to being one of the world's largest manufacturers of, of anything. Yeah, um, at a price point, and they you know they have made electric cars accessible and cool yeah. and yeah that's that's what has impressed me that's it I, I look at them and go I, I drove a model three it's like let's see what this is like and I, I didn't really gel with it um but i look at what exactly that the technology what they're pushing mm. the way they're pushing their processes and simplification of systems and control systems in the car, all that sort of stuff I yep. find really interesting and the way they've done all these gigapresses and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Like, you, people used to look at EVs and go, oh, they're really expensive and blah, 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 blah. Well, now you look at a Model 3 and like relative to another new car, mm. they're really not expensive mm. and they're looking, they're going to be making a cheaper car than that. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is bringing, this is genuinely making transport cheaper for everyone. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Which oh, is really cool. We've got two Model 3s here, two of my directors have got yeah. And they're, yeah, what what they are for the catch, because what's, what's a Golf now? You spend over 40 grand on a yeah. Golf really 100%. easily. Um, no, that, that's that's what's impressed me, actually. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's cool. Uh, Five-car garage. Unlimited value. Well, you could have told me these questions before. No, the whole yeah, point is I don't <laughs> tell you. <laughs> um, DB4 GT Zagato. Nice. RS6. Yeah. Wish I, I had one. Loved it. Yeah. Um, Why did you get rid of it? Because uh, someone let themselves into my house and took the keys 
and then took oh, the fair car. enough. Yeah. <laughs> it went, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't get rid of it. Oh, someone unfortunate. else um, Four GTs, Gato, uh, RS6. Some silly, modern, thousand horsepower Which one? Thing. Which one? 812 GTS, actually. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice car. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's that, three? That's three. Mm. <laughs> you could have, uh, well, I guess you've sort of got a race car, but like you could have a race car, you could have a, I don't know. I would, so if, it, if, it's, if it's toys all round, I would have a Malek Clubman's car. Nice. To play with and go yeah, and yeah, use yeah. on the track because heritage and mega things, etc. Um I should have a Bev, shouldn't I? I guess. Maybe. Good to cover all bases. Yeah. Um, I'd go Taycan. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go GTS, which is one I ordered but I couldn't get. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Taycan, Sport Turismo. Nice. GTS. Just I'm really... Nice wafting car. Yeah, oh, yeah. actually. No, mate. No. Spectre. Oh. Yes. That's, that's the one, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because that's proper wafting isn't it? Yeah, that's cool. Right. There we go. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. That's been good.